My name is Lisa Smith Henderson, and this is the podcast, Alma, Am I Racist? And if you want to know more about who Alma was and what she meant to me, you can go to the website, almaamiracist.com. And I'm so excited today to have a woman who, this is the first time we've ever seen each other. We talked on the phone together and we just clicked. And I can't even tell you how we got onto the topic of racism, but we did. And I said, oh, Chisa, would you be in my podcast? So Chisa is just like Lisa. And my first name is Christy. So it's sort of like combo C-H. So I love your name. Thank you. Thank you so much. So welcome and thank you for being willing to come on and just tell me your experience, strength and hope and how you can help white us white people that are sometimes, (laughs) you know, in the dark about what to do and how to do it. So I'd like, would you start by giving us a little bit of background, like where you grew up and sort of what your experience was growing up? um, Of course, you know, I live in Atlanta, but I was born in, I was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, but I was raised in Decatur, Georgia. I went to school in Decatur, Georgia. Um, I was raised by a single mom. She has three children. And um, she decided, you know, I can't take this small town. You know, this is not for me. I'm out of here. And so she, you know, packed up myself, my sister and brother, and at that time, her husband. And we all moved to Atlanta. So she moved to Atlanta uh, off the promise of a, a family member. Like a, it was like her stepbrother or something that was already here. Yes, yes, you can come. You can live with us. She had really odd, she'd get on your feet, and then she comes. This is in the early 80s. So then she comes, and he's like, who are you? So we were homeless. Wow. What was that like? We was living in her in the car. So, um, and, but they were, my sister, well, they were babies, so they don't have any uh, recollection of any of this, but I was you know, of age to remember. And it wasn't, it wasn't for long when we, a person, a stranger, just, I don't know if he frequent the park or whatever, but he's seen her and he was like, I don't, I didn't hear the conversation, but this is her telling the story that, you know, he, my friend of mine was like, I don't mean any harm, but I would love to, you know, you guys invite you out to my church. It's a pastor. I don't know the church. And so they invited us to the home, to their home. And they, allowed us to eat and, and did our hair and stuff like that. And they took us to the Wednesday night services. And uh, he said that, you know, I have a family that's in need. He didn't say who, we didn't appear to be homeless. So we need to collect up enough money. And it was the entire congregation collected up enough money so my mom could get an apartment. And then she just progressively gotten better and just gotten to where she is now. Today she's retired now, but it was it was a struggle dealing with how, how old were you, Chisa, when six. that happened? You were six. six. Wow. Do you remember feeling afraid? You know, not n- no. Good because I was with them and it felt like and you know she would spin it like oh we just have to you know if, if the house is not ready you know. It, 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 
to reassure. Say, yeah. yeah, I knew that we didn't have a place to stay, and I was, can we just go back to Grandma's house? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, we can't go back. We're in Atlanta, and we're gonna live here. And, you know. So you've been in Atlanta since you were six. Then mm-hmm. tell me what it was like growing up. Were you in a mixed neighborhood or a predominantly black neighborhood? We was in a predominantly black neighborhood, and I didn't. When when everybody's dealing with the same thing, you don't really know that there's an issue. So everybody, I grew up around. Everybody was was black. I didn't realize racism was a thing until, I mean, I knew that there was a difference between white people and black people. And I knew that, in fact, I didn't come across my first white person until I was about 10. Like even my teachers, they were black. My first male teacher was my fifth grade teacher. So I was 10. He's a white guy from I didn't recognize racism until maybe about middle school. And I knew that it was a thing, but for the majority of my life, I knew that white people were different and I knew that they could do stuff that we couldn't do. Yeah, about middle school is about when I started noticing the preferential treatment between whites and blacks. At the school that I went to in Decatur, I noticed like it wasn't a lot of white children but I noticed that majority of the white children were in magnet classes they were afforded like better field trips and couldn't go like they had more exposure I would say to to things that normally all children should be exposed to and you know it isn't because they were any brighter Mm -mm. I mean that's what's really sad Mm -hmm. it really is even like through high school, like you, you didn't have, I was exposed to, to white people then, but because they were like either of of authority. The friends of mine and the people that I've interviewed who grew up in predominantly black neighborhoods and churches seemed to be almost better because there wasn't this struggle from early on. And what's your take on that? Do you think the segregation right. in a way is actually better as far as uh, like kind of grounding? I think it made it segregation. Yeah, because at that, I think it was a little bit better because we had to, we had no choice but to deal with each other and we had no choice but to, to support each other. I think when it when civil rights came in 65, and then, like, about 1970, that's when you had all the projects to come up in the inner cities. And then you started to, the, the initiative was to break up the Black family and to make the Black male economically irrelevant to the Black family, which then you can break up that huge sense of su- supporting one another because we had no choice. So, Chisa, tell me a little bit about what happened after high school. Like, when you got out into the world, is that when you began to see more racism? Yes, in the workplace. This is when it was evident. And the reason why is because this is when I really learned that I wasn't equal and I couldn't do, and I wasn't afforded the same benefit of the doubt is when I entered the workforce. Quick example, and it is crazy that we 
and psychologically raise our children to be prepared for you know the real world because it exists prime example you may have a white girl dyes her hair blue it's not a natural hair color but she'd be given the past of oh she's just being expressive she's expressing her creativity versus a black girl it would be labeled as oh she's ghetto yeah, but so automatically the labeling has begun. Right, right. So I know, and even still now, we could all, women are pretty much similar in terms of characteristics. Yeah, we, we are more emotional than men would be. And we would probably have outbursts or breakdowns or meltdowns, but it's just seen differently. I've even, you know, I've had like my white boss, she's a female, she's one of them, she's a female and would drop F-bombs on the regular. It was okay. And I was like, and I told her, I was like, um, no, we both were in management. Like when the position you met me in, I've completely come out of management. I, I'm done. Like I'm coasting <laughs> until I you know, leave. And I, I think I told you that I'm a loan officer. So that's, I'm retiring out of the med field and into, you know, the financial services, but she would just drop back to the, to the previous boss and her boss, which was, you know, not my immediate, but our boss was white. It was a white woman too. And it was just overlooked. And I told her one day we were sitting next to each other and she was using that language. And I was like, you know, I can't do that. Right. Like I would be seen as aggressive and I'd be ready. You'd be ready to, you know, fire me. I can't do that. Like you, and, and, and it was okay. And I accepted it. You know, it was fine. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal, but I just let her know. Like, and that's the thing, like, you cannot do the same thing. And did she acknowledge that was the truth? Mm, I, you know, I cannot remember what she said. Because when she did, and I looked at her like, you're not even being professional. First of all, I am your downline and just F on this and I hate people and yada, yada, yada. And, and not to mention, it was a lot of nepotism in that company. <laughs> so then you had the husband and the wives, you know, have an argument in the production area. Like it wasn't behind closed doors. It was in front of people. And she was, you know, she was, her husband worked there. And you could tell if they were arguing. And, you know, she would be upset and she'd walk storm off. And I'm like, and I was just, and I would tell her like, you know, I can't do that. I would be seen as aggressive. Mm-hmm. An angry black woman. Right. And I don't know if she ever acknowledged it or I'm not sure. And we, she and I, we've had discussions about race and, and she wasn't racist at all. I, I don't feel, I never felt like she, and her husband on the other end, I felt like he was. But, <laughs> because, and he was just probably psychologically raised. He probably just wasn't even realizing that he, he is. I felt like it, but I, I didn't feel like she had a racist bone in her body. This is interesting because this is an example of white privilege that I've never entertained or heard about. Is the ability to be able to swear in the workplace and not be seen as unprofessional. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that doesn't, you know, you can't go in a bank and drop the F-bomb. But if somebody, oh, wow. So my balls. Yeah. These, all of these things of white privilege that we don't think about, it just never even crossed mm-hmm. my mind. I was in a very male dominated business because I was in radio. So I just started cussing like all the guys, you know, mm-hmm. but had I been a black woman in a white man's world, right. I would have had to have, and, and I came into the profession in the seventies. So there were very few women disc jockeys. So I always dressed very professionally. I tried to act professional, all that so that I could be seen as equal but I never were, but I, and I didn't ever have the added pressure of being a black woman in a white man's world. And that is like a whole nother heap of pressure. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. We have a fine line to, to walk. Can we fast forward to you having a child and the world that she grew up in and how did you sit down and have the talk or did it just kind of come about organically? Tell me what that was like being a mom. It was, it it came organically and it was over time. So I would give, give her bits and pieces and I'm still giving bits and pieces with the child. You don't want to throw too much on them. Hey, straighten up, be tough because we're seen as characters of, of strength and not to, you can't get emotional, like you can't be vulnerable, you know, because you will be seen as unhuman, I would say. So get it together. I remember even like for myself, like having to go into a room and, and cry. This is at work going to a room because I'm totally frustrated, going to a room, cry, get myself together and come out like nothing ever happened. Because we, it's almost like you have the pressure of you having to be emotionalist and- And be perfect. Yeah, just be perfect. (laughs) That's it. That's it. That's it. But sometimes you you may not think so, but sometimes black people are just, we're, we're the worst to one another. And some, and a, and a lot of times, like I'm no longer with that company, but it it took a black woman for me to say, you know what, I had enough, and I walked out, and I no longer wanted to be in management. In fact, my worst leaders that I've ever had were black women. Really interesting. And why was that? Because of the expectations for you to continue to be perfect? No, no I don't know. I think we're just the worst to each other. I really don't have a explanation other than you know, we're really the worst and I, I came when I came into leadership I tried to be a different leader that you know was you know I was understanding in fact my best leader that I've had is a white man I prefer to work for a man I work for a man now I prefer a white male say more about that Jesus. Like, that's interesting you're <laughs> just Although the system is set up, like the entire system is set up for for white men to succeed, books like success books and stuff like that, they're written really for white men. 
Um, but my best leaders, like, was as far as as being understanding and, you know, didn't hover over me and, you know, just allowed me to blossom, I would say they it's been lightning. I don't know why that is. Interesting. Well, maybe there's more equality there in some unusual way. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe white men never seen. They don't see you as a threat. I don't know. They don't have to make your life hard. But all of my best leaders I've ever had have been male, and then you know, then black men, which I've never had, gay or straight, didn't matter. I've always looked. In fact, my my best leader that. I took some of his leadership skills and, and characteristics was a black man. So black women at the bottom of the your leadership pyramid as far as preference. Yeah, preference yeah. to work it. Like a, like I said, there was a black woman that we, she and I we bumped heads and she's a micromanager. I am not. I'm a macro manager. So I wanted you to be able to do your job. We're all adults. And that's what I learned that from my male leaders. We're all adults. I expect you to do your job. If I ask you to do something, I need you to do this. But you that's know, your my truth. Experience. That's your, that is your experience and your reality. So Chisa, when you and I had talked on the phone, you touched on something about the discrimination with finances just mm-hmm. based on names. Will you say a little bit more about that? Because this is the kind of thing white people don't hear this stuff. Yeah. And they think, oh, that was in some article somewhere. Think, now, if you could jog my memory a little bit about that conversation, but I think I was saying something like my mom named me Chifa because she didn't want me to be identified by my name. Was it something like that? I don't remember. I want to say it had something to do with, and maybe it was applications. It may Mm -hmm. not have been financial, but that you would see the preferential treatment go to white people. And I don't remember if it was a name thing. Well, that is, that is, that's a definite thing. And so the reason why my mom, because she experienced racism, of course. But she said, I named you Chisa because I didn't want people to know whether you were Black, white, Asian. And, and then back then in the 80s, Chisa, it's, it's more common now than it was in the 80s. Um, but she set me up because I got picked on <laughs> a lot because of my name, but I actually love it. I love now. it. But she you know, was thinking I didn't want people to know based off looking at an edu- at a, uh, application if you were Black or white because those do get tossed out. Those, and people, you do get judged by your name. And I, and I, and you know what? It's crazy. It's not crazy, but I did the same thing with my daughter. I named her a common name. I didn't want her to be judged based off her name. So, in fact, I, you know, I tell young mothers, I'm telling them, like, just be careful what you name your child. Like celebrities, they get to name their child. Like somebody, some celebrity, they name their child seven or something like that, which is cute now. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, like Apple, somebody named their child Apple and yeah. Willow. And, but they were afforded the um, privilege to be able to do that because, you know, they, were, they lived a more affluent life. 
so you can name the child exactly what you want, but we really had to put in, I put in a lot of thought into, you know, naming my child. Turns out it was like 50 million Caymans. <laughs> but, you know, and that's, you know, and the crazy thing is it was a psychological, like my mom psychologically raised me to do the same thing that she did, you know, with my daughter as she did with me and with my sister and my brother. Like my sister, my sister name is, is Nicole and uh, my brother's name is Alex. So she wanted to make sure that, you know, we were, I assume like when she grew up, that was a thing. And it, and it, and it still is. Yeah, like, it still made. is. And but, you think um, about it, this, this level of thought about what to name your child is in utero, pre-birth racism dealing with racism, trying to cut it off at the pass. Or minimize it. Or minimize it. it off, yeah. Just yeah. Try to try to minimize it. And you you want to give your child the best shot of, that you could possibly give your child. And what do you see? What have you seen the greatest change in when you came into the workplace and now has there been any leveling of the playing field no at all (laughs) that isn't you know that's not what i wanted to hear i wanted to hear (laughs) yes there's been improvement but the truth is there there is yes there's been improvement but leveling of the playing field absolutely not absolutely not and i don't think there will ever be leveling of the playing field Ever or just in our lifetimes? In our lifetimes. Yeah. And I mean, even still, like even like we thought like, okay, well, the new kids coming up, you know, the new generation, my daughter's generation, we're thinking that they're going to be okay. But then we have Trump out here that's inciting racist white people. And Mm -hmm. so now I'm seeing young white people be just as racist as their parents and grandparents. So do I think it'll ever go anywhere? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Do you think talking about it helps? Absolutely. And I think that's what we should do. There should be a dialogue about racism. But if you think about it, if we don't, if, if we don't do this, Lisa, right? You have a black lady and you have a white lady. If we don't do this and we're all forever at odds, then we don't realize we're being pickpocketed because we're always at odds. If we actually get on one accord, we would be more powerful than we are apart. So the thing is, yes, I'm going to continue to keep some sort of a difference difference between whether it's classism now in europe or in in south africa i would have never thought it was a colorism type um, racism deal i thought it would be more a classism uh, prejudice i have to say having lived in south africa for four years and just having come back from visiting last week it still blows my mind that white people from the country to city folk, from dirt poor farmers, to rich people with million dollar mansions, there is still so much prejudice. And 
So apartheid ended on paper legally, but Mm. psychically in, in the fabric of the society, it hasn't. So when I see that, it just it's like kind of more in my face. But truly, we're not that different in America. We're a little better about maybe brushing over it and, you know, oh, that's not me. But the truth is, for me as a white person to say I have any sense of what it is like to be a black woman is just baloney. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't. I don't. And and even you pointing that out about the swearing, it's like the nuances of white privilege are tremendous. I'll give you a recent example. My son and his fiance and four-year-old are moving into a neighborhood and they're renting a house. Mm-hmm. They had to be approved by the homeowners association. And I told him, I said, you know, because you're white, you're going to get approved. And he goes, I know, mom, it's wrong, but it it is the reality. And I just thought, what would that be like? Because he's down in Coweta County. <laughs> and my, my liberal son, God bless him, is down there in like kind of his worst nightmare and trying to you know, bubble his world enough that he's not hit with that. But that is the truth, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like, well, he got the right paint job. So I think he'll be okay. But who, who's his, is his, his significant other, his fiance, is she black? Or? No, she's, no, she's white. She's They're black? all just oh. as white as can be. But that's be the thing. Okay. Because they were white the approval from the homeowners association came through and I, I could be dead wrong. It might just be an income thing that they could afford to rent the house and the home. But this is that thing where they look at the names and they look, they look white. Those names look white. Mm -hmm. Even the last name. Yeah. Not that many white Johnsons out there anymore. Yeah. Even the last name. I I think this is where I want to acknowledge there is white privilege. Mm -hmm. And I want to say on behalf of my family and my ancestors did have slaves. And I'm so sorry for that. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to apologize. But you know... The thing is, I need to own that because that is the truth, Chisa. Yes, I can't make it right, but I can own it and say that is the truth. Yeah, and and I am sorry about that. It is. We are. I can't speak for the entire race, but we are. We we are okay. We are in acceptance of what happened. What you're doing is righting the wrong. Continuing to broadcast and help educate white people, that's how you right the wrong. But saying that you're sorry is not necessary because it, it's, a, it's history. It's, it's our history. It's your history. Like Black history is your history. It happened. What we want to see is acknowledgement 
and what are you doing to right the wrong and just help educating is righting that wrong. So I think you are, you're doing enough in terms of what I would see in my eyes. You, because you are white, you are going to benefit from. Yes. Um, system. The benefit of the lives that were built on the backs of black people. Uh-huh. Yes. You, and we just need to be better as a people, a, like a human race in conflict resolution. But let's just talk it out, hash it out, and then we'll realize how much we do have in common. Um, one thing we do hate about, hate hearing, um, I, I hate hearing, I should say, I hate hearing is um, sometimes I'll, I'll see on it. We grew up in poverty and we, you know, it's like white people talking. We had it hard and, and I'm like, just imagine how hard your life would have been if you were black being told some bull crap of why you didn't get the position or why you didn't get your offer didn't get accepted you want to buy in a certain neighborhood or or being redlining we should just double down and hold our local government accountable like we deserve the same level of education as they would do in the white area. We deserve the same books, but a lot of black people we leave those areas. And then when we leave those areas, like like Atlanta, like Bankhead, like I can't imagine houses now are over a million dollars, like over there. And it's like, are you kidding? So basically people left the area because you wanted to afford your child, your children better opportunities or you leave for a better area when in time you should have stayed and made it a better environment. So what else can white people do besides talking? What what can we do? How can I be a player besides having a podcast? How can I help write things? I would say you just continue to educate. Will you come back on the podcast again? Absolutely. I will come back. And then the next time I want to come back, I want to dive in more in the finances. Yep. I would like that. Chisa Johnson, thank you so much for being with me today on Alma, Am I Racist? Alma, Am I Racist? (laughs) And Alma says, no, she's not. (laughs) (laughs) Alma said she's still working on it. To hear more of the episodes of Alma Am I Racist, you can go to our website, almamiracist.com. Thanks for listening.